0: In 2016, I started driving two-lane roads through small towns all over the United States, looking for vintage movie theaters. Movie theaters with just one or two screens, usually built sometime between 1920 and 1960, and usually in dusty downtowns or rundown suburbs. Eight years later, I documented over 200 such movie theaters, some thriving, some abandoned, most just hanging in there. I stop, I take a few pictures, and if I'm lucky, I hear a story from someone about what that theater means to them. What that theater means to their town. Join me as I visit eight vintage American movie theaters and share their stories. Stories about everything from childhood matinees and bad dates to cult movies and concession states. Common Ground, stories from America's vintage movie theaters. I'm anxious about meeting Lana under the marquee of the Foster Theatre, here on the south side of Youngstown, Ohio. The theatre looks terrible. It's been closed since 2021, and before then the owners were letting the building fall down around them as they screened X-rated movies. Now the paint is peeling, the neon has been stripped, office windows over the marquee are broken, and nearly all the glazed metal panels that once covered the building's front are gone. I'm anxious about meeting Lana because, well, to her, this isn't just any theater. Hello, Lana. Hi, Hi Hello. I'm Gary hart It's a pleasure to meet
1: you. I'm Lana Shagrin oyer and I am the daughter of Joe Chagrin that originally built this theater in 1938. And I grew up here selling candy and popcorn when I was a teenager.
0: I knew it had been a while since Lana had seen the foster, but I'm about to find out how long.
1: I left town in 1958, and I don't think I came back. I went to college and moved to Mansfield, Ohio. Now I live in Phoenix, Arizona. Been there 32 years almost.
0: 1958, Lana has not been back in 65 years. By the way, and I don't think she'd mind me mentioning this, Lana looks sensational this morning in a striking turquoise pantsuit. Her hair and makeup are perfect. As I expected, she is a bit shocked by the Foster's condition.
1: It's sad. It's only because the theater looks so bad. It was beautiful when I remember it.
0: But she is game for a tour. She's brought her niece, Kim, and Len, her boyfriend. We're joined by Ian Beniston, who directs the nonprofit that now owns the Foster. Ian unlocks the doors... And in we go.
1: Like
0: the lobby is empty and dusty, but it's not in terrible shape. The original floor, complete with a gorgeous inlaid art modern design, is dirty but intact. Lana's told me she's not sure what, if anything, she'll remember about the foster. But as soon as we're inside, she points to the wall on our left. All right, so this is where
1: the popcorn and candy, right here. here. I sold popcorn popcorn. and candy. And Kim remembers the popcorn came in these big round bags, and they heated the popcorn in this warmer. And then I scooped it out into the bags and sold the candy.
0: Lana turns and points to a narrow door to a tiny booth from which the tickets were sold. You enter the booth from inside the lobby and then sell tickets to patrons outside under the marquee through a window.
1: The box office, the gals were uh, sisters, Agnes and Sophie Nierhaus and they were here for many, many years. I would stand in the box office with them, and I did take tickets periodically, so I used to stand and visit with them, and they're very lovely people. They ended up moving to Florida. I don't remember the lobby being so small, but I guess it was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you were small, the lobby was big. (laughs) Yeah. We make our way into the auditorium. There's not a lot of light, but you can tell the room is enormous, much bigger than you'd expect from the outside. Surprisingly, the Foster was never twinned or tripled, that is, subdivided into two or three or more smaller projection rooms. It still seats about 800 people, twice the size of most neighborhood theaters. Except for some decaying wall coverings and a lot of dust, it looks much as it did 65 years ago. Along one side of the theater, there are exit doors.
1: I can only remember my dad walking up and down the side, checking the exit door. That's all I remember.
0: Lana's dad wasn't checking to make sure the doors were working. He was checking that they hadn't been propped open a tiny bit from the inside by kids attempting to get their friends in for free. It was a common shenanigan in the days before Metroplexes and alarmed exits, and the bane of theater managers everywhere. Lana decides to make a video. Len and Ian help her set up her iPhone.
1: It's not coming up.
0: It's kind of dark in here. Should I take? Well, no, video. it came on
1: portrait. Put a video in. Put you a video. Can do on.
0: A video and take still. Photos. I did
1: panoramic. Okay, video. Here we here go. Here you go. Okay, so this is what's left of the Foster Theater. Many years ago, it was built in nineteen thirty-eight, right before I was born in nineteen forty.
0: Lana's father, Joseph Chagrin, emigrated to Youngstown from Hungary with his family in eighteen eighty-eight. Joe was, two. In his teens, he began working as an usher and befriended Jack Warner, who, with his brothers, would go on to found one of the big five motion picture companies, Warner Brothers. By the time Joe was 24, he was managing the Grand Opera House in downtown Youngstown, a 2,000-seat venue that hosted traveling repertory companies and fare like Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West Show.
1: My father was the youngest theater manager in the country ever. And he was very, very close friends with Al Jolson and George M. Cohen. Very good. I have pictures of him with George M. Cohen. Yes, a lot of famous people came through Youngstown.
0: When he was 27, Joe moved to New Jersey to manage the New Brunswick Opera House. But he returned to Youngstown in 1921 to assume the management of another of Youngstown's grand downtown live venues the 1,638-seat Park Theater, part-owned by George M. Cohan. Joe managed the park through its glory years in the 1920s and 30s, hosting the premier talent of the day, Al Jolson, Ethel Barrymore, Harry Houdini, Catherine Hepburn.
1: He was known as Mr. Showbiz. They asked him at 50 years what his hobby was, and he said, my hobby is showbiz.
0: <laughs> then, in the 1930s, he had an idea.
1: My dad believed in neighborhoods, and he thought that neighborhood theaters were the coming thing.
0: Joe bought land on Youngstown's booming south side, on the trolley line, and a 15-minute walk from Mydora Park, a popular Youngstown getaway that offered roller coasters, a swimming pool, and a bandstand. And this new theater would have something you couldn't get downtown, free parking and lots of it. The neighborhood was known as Fosterville, so Joe named his new theater... The Foster. Joe Chagrin managed the Foster Theater for the next 25 years. He booked the movies, too, making monthly trips to New York City to screen films, scout live talent for his other projects, and meet with his many friends in the business. In 1965, at age 77, he sold the Foster Theater. For a few years after that, it was the Foster Art Theater, featuring curated foreign and independent films. And then, like so many struggling theaters in the early 70s, it turned exclusively to X-rated fare. The Foster screened X-rated movies in its 800-seat auditorium for 50 years, until it was bought by the Youngstown Neighborhood Development Corporation in June of 2021. I asked Lana what it's like to be back in the theater.
1: It's awesome just to be back here, looking at it, you know, and it's, I'll tell you, it's 80 years. Oh my God. No, it's got to be 84 years old because I'm 83. It's 84 years old, Kim. Right Right before I was born. It's still standing.
0: The foster is still standing. But you're probably wondering why it's in such disrepair, nearly abandoned. That story starts with jobs. In Youngstown, in 1940, there were tens of thousands of them. Shifts of 15,000 workers went in and out of Youngstown's steel mills every eight hours, around the clock, five or more days a week. Inside, men in asbestos suits fed enormous blast furnaces and wrangled two-story-high vats of molten steel. Europeans had come to Youngstown for decades to do this work. But as European immigration dwindled in the 1930s, Black Americans, often from the South, took their place, seeking decent, stable incomes and perhaps a little less racism. They got hired and moved into burgeoning Black neighborhoods all over the city, including the South Side. As for a little less racism, well, here's what happened. The city's white business leaders and elected officials systematically disinvested in neighborhoods where black workers lived, via what we now call redlining. The term comes from the residential security maps created in the 1930s for 239 American cities by the Home Owners Loan Corporation, the HOLC. The maps show the investment risk for different neighborhoods, the extent to which a home in a given neighborhood was worthy of a mortgage. The most investment-worthy neighborhoods were outlined in green, the least in red. Black neighborhoods were redlined. But a neighborhood didn't have to be all black to be redlined. In its 1938 report on neighborhood D6, 10 blocks from the Foster, the HOLC warned of "...small spots of Negroes settling all through the area, thereby threatening the entire district." Trend is downward. Property, if acquired, should be sold rather than held." Unquote. Blacks comprised 5% of the population of D6, according to the HOLC. Redlining was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Denied investment, property values, home ownership, and quality of life in the increasingly black neighborhoods around the foster declined, just as predicted. And it gets worse. Black steel workers weren't promoted as often, so they didn't experience the upward mobility of others who worked in the mills. They couldn't save enough money to buy a home in a better neighborhood. They were stuck. You'd think it couldn't get much worse, but on September 19, 1977, it got a lot worse. Youngstown's sheet and tube closed its camel works, putting 5,000 people out of work in one day. Black Monday. In the next decade, Youngstown lost 40,000 manufacturing jobs. It was all especially tragic for black steel workers, who, thanks to civil rights legislation, were finally starting to get better jobs in the mills. Now, there were no jobs at all. So, people left, if they could. In the 1980s and 90s, Youngstown lost 30% of its population, from 120,000 to 80,000. Today, in 2023, just under 60,000 people call the city home. Hundreds of homes on the south side were abandoned and later bulldozed, leaving neighborhoods that are, to this day, a patchwork of houses and grassy lots. Businesses disappeared. Idora Park closed in 1984. In later years, almost all of it burned or was demolished. So, the foster is nearly abandoned because its neighborhood was nearly abandoned. In fact, given all of this, it's a bit amazing it survived at all. I knew much of this before I began researching this episode. I knew it because I grew up four miles away in Boardman, one of the suburbs to which white Youngstowners fled in the 1960s. My mother grew up in Fosterville, two blocks from the Foster Theater. When the Foster opened in 1938, she was ten. She spent her weekends there and at Idora Park. In 1969, our family moved to Boardman, and through the 70s, I heard countless times from my family and neighbors that black people had, quote, taken over, unquote, the South Side, and were moving ever closer to Boardman, to us. My white friends and I were told to avoid the South Side. In fact, before today, I'd never set foot in the Foster. Right, right. I did not realize that. In the auditorium, Ian is about to tell us what the future holds for this theater. Ian grew up on Youngstown's north side. His dad was a steelworker. He left for a few years to get a master's degree in city and regional planning at Ohio State. And then he came back to take a job as deputy director of the newly formed Youngstown Neighborhood Development Corporation, a nonprofit with the mission of, quote, improving the quality of life in Youngstown by building and encouraging investment in neighborhoods of choice for all. He's been their executive director since 2014. The YNDC buys derelict homes and businesses like the Foster all over Youngstown. It restores the homes and helps local residents purchase them. And it renovates the businesses with an eye toward what the neighborhood needs now. On our short walk to the Foster, Ian points to a recent YNDC project, a small shopping plaza that had been abandoned for years. The YNDC bought the property renovated it, and today it's bustling. There's a fresh market, an after-school program, a soul food restaurant, and an urgent care. It turns out an 800-seat single-screen movie theater isn't what this neighborhood needs right now. It needs safe, affordable housing. So that's what the foster will become. Here's Ian. Yeah, you won't be able to recognize it as a theater theater once it's renovated. So this particular space, the floor will be leveled. Uh, There'll be four townhome style living units, apartments in here. So uh, they'll have pretty cool patios. There'll be second story windows too and vaulted ceilings coming in. So you have additional light coming in the space here. The foster will be unrecognizable from the inside, but from the outside, it will be very recognizable. The YNDC's renovation will preserve the theater's shape and roofline, and the front of the theater, with its marquee and neon Foster sign, will be completely restored. The theater originally housed a florist and a candy shop. The renovation will recover those retail spaces. By 2025, the Foster will look much like it did the day it opened. The YNDC is doing all this because they value what this theater means to Fosterville. And they want the vitality that a fully lit marquee brings to a street. The day they bought the Foster, they replaced the triple X-rated titles on the marquee with one word: revitalize. On our way out in the lobby, we spot the door to the ticket booth again. After a couple of tries, Ian gets it open.
1: Is the ticket on? Yeah. Oh look, it's still there oh my god it's still there that's amazing that's, i remember standing in there with the these two near house yeah. sisters oh my gosh let me look better the tickets popped up right in the front See where those right at the front they came up yeah there's one two three four five tickets oh my gosh come out to the front that's original microphone in there
0: to talk to people do you remember how much the tickets were? What did they cost? Originally like ten
1: cents.
0: Yeah. Len has an idea. He asks Lana to get in the booth while he goes outside under the marquee. I want you to go in there. I want you to go, go in, in, in there. Yeah, Petcher. What yeah, you what you Yeah, Watch. Be careful. There's a ledge there. Yeah, watch that little hole too. Okay, you gonna give me a ticket? You you're gonna give me a ticket?
1: Ten cents, please.
0: Ten cents! Wow. I remember those.
1: Days. No, I don't <laughs> Oh my god, master. No, I don't think.
0: The Foster won't be a theater ever again. But it has survived by adapting. And it's not the only part of Youngstown's South Side to pull off that trick. There's hardly anything left of Idora Park where it once stood, less than a mile from the Foster. But if you travel to Brooklyn, New York you can ride Jane's Carousel, a meticulously restored 1922 merry-go-round. It is, in fact, the very carousel ridden by children and adults for over 60 years at Idora Park, perhaps before or after they took in a movie at the Foster. Common Ground, Stories from America's Vintage Movie Theatres is produced by me, Gary Hardcastle, in New York City. Thanks to Shag Shagrin, Kim Shagrin Buckley, Len Dollins, and especially Lana Shagrin-Oyer for sharing your memories with me. Thanks to Youngstown historian Sean Posey for valuable background information, and to Ian Beniston of the Youngstown Neighborhood Development Corporation for telling us about the Foster's future and for giving us a tour. Thanks also to Michael A. Beverly, whose master's thesis, African-American Experience in Youngstown, 1940 to 1965, helped me enormously. If you want to learn more about redlining, I recommend Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, from Live Right Press. The Common Ground theme was written and performed by Billy Kelly. You can hear more of his work at billykellymusic.com. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. In the coming months, I'll be on the road visiting theaters for new episodes of Common Ground, coming to you in the spring and summer of 2024. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss them. Do you know of a theater with stories to tell? Tell me about it by emailing me at ghardcast at gmail.com. Your suggestion could end up on Common Ground, stories from America's vintage movie theaters.